This is an ABC podcast. It's a pretty historic occasion, regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum, because it's been close to three decades since we had a referendum. So this isn't the kind of legislation that you see passing every day. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome back to the party room because we're back. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RM Breakfast, joining you from the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people here in Parliament House, Canberra. And I'm David Spears, host of Insiders, also joining you from Parliament House. And PK, we're fresh off the back of the uh, parliamentary midwinter ball last night, so I will apologise at the outset for any croakiness. Not from a big night drinking. I just, I don't know, I find these days a later night, a noisy room where you've got to do a lot of shouting mm. to be heard. I, I often wake up with a same, croaky voice. Same, same. I think we left at a similar time, actually. We're both quite respectable <laughs> or you, you embarrassing. this morning. I didn't hear any croakiness. You hide it well. I sang all the way to work. That's my, that's my uh, secret source. I want to go down that rabbit hole right now. What do you go to tunes in the drive to work? Um, Tay-Tay. Yeah, look, George uh, Michael. George Michael. I, I'm a pop I'm a pop queen. All right, whatever gets your day started. Uh, look, what started this week in Parliament was a big vote on The Voice, on the Indigenous Voice. This was the vote in the Senate. They'd already voted in the House, but the vote in the Senate now is the final hurdle for the referendum to be held later this year, October or November. We hear the date from the Prime Minister. But that vote in the Senate was a, a big moment. 52-19 was the vote on the floor. Plenty of applause from the galleries and from some of the senators on the floor. Not everyone, PK, necessarily pleased with it. We saw the coalition then spend really the rest of the week going after the government in question time over the voice, really targeting Linda Burney. We'll get into all of that with uh, Dana Morse, ABC political reporter, who's going to be joining us here in the studio. It's great that we're all in the studio together. Mm. I love conversations when we're all face to face. So she'll be with us soon to talk about all of that. But this final week of Parliament before the long winter break, uh, this hasn't been the only thing on the uh, agenda. No, in fact, uh, quite a lot on the agenda, which makes sense. This week, the government was hoping to pass its contentious and much debated housing bill, the Housing Australia Future Fund, which, of course, is this $10 billion future fund to invest and pay earnings of $500 million a year to invest in social and affordable housing. Now, it is a key Labor policy, and as you've heard on this podcast before, it's become incredibly contentious. The Greens have been making lots of demands for much more. And, David, they had a bit of a win on the weekend, but it's still not good enough. Yeah, look, it's been fascinating, this one, because I, I wrote an online piece about this, ABC Online, you can check it out, but it's, it's about how the Greens and Labor work together, kind of love-hate each other, confrontation, but then sometimes they cooperate. That's been the pattern on so many big bills, climate bills, the, the manufacturing fund, which is kind of similar to this housing fund. And this negotiation on housing, though, has been really interesting because the government's actually given more ground I reckon, than they have in any of those previous ones. They've moved on quite a few issues in this housing space to try and win over the Greens, including, as you say, over the weekend, suddenly finding that extra $2 billion for social housing. There was some discussion within the Greens, I can tell you, ahead of this week starting, as to whether they just bank that victory and back the bill. They ultimately decided not to. They want to keep pushing for more. And they're pushing for 
well, they would like more on social housing, to be fair, but they're pushing for, for more on renters. And this is kind of separate. I know there's a bit of overlap, but it's a separate issue. It's something the states and territories are responsible for, a, a freeze on rents. Look, the government's not going to go there and there's arguments whether the Commonwealth can really do much on that front. And so the vote was deferred uh, until October and that's been seen by the government as a failure to pass by the Senate. Mm. And what does that mean, a failure to pass, David? Well, a failure to pass is the first strike, if you like, in the two strikes that set up a double dissolution early election or give the government the trigger to hold an early double dissolution election. A failure to pass twice on a bill with a three-month gap in between each failure gives the government the trigger to dissolve Parliament entirely and have an early election. Now, the Greens don't think this is a failure to pass. They say, look, they're just taking a bit more time. They're waiting for a national cabinet meeting to talk about rent freezes and then they'll vote on this in, in October. They're not opposed, they're saying, to the, to the bill. The government, though, is pretty clear. In their view, it is a failure to pass. The Prime Minister's getting advice from the Solicitor General on that to back it up. I had a chat with Anne Toomey, the constitutional law expert. She reckons, yeah, probably is a failure to pass. There's not a lot of High Court precedence on this, but in her view, it probably is. So, look, it really is ratcheting this up, isn't it? Mm. it, it you know... The, Look, I don't think they're going to hold a double dissolution this this year. But next year, who knows? Prime Ministers always like to have that trigger in their back pocket yeah. just in case. Yeah, they do. They mm. do, absolutely. It's interesting, though, the way the Greens have handled this and the real political play for the young vote, which yeah. we know is a bigger part of the electorate, the millennial vote that's been rising. The Greens really pitching to that disenfranchisement in that cohort, thinking that the next tranche, which is rents, will give them that political kind mm. of capital. Do you think, though, there might be, and I say might because we haven't seen it play out in the electorate, but a bit of overreach here? Because they've got that win, the $2 billion, Like, yeah, the government I, says it had nothing to do with them. I Look, I think it had got something. It did have something to do with the pressure they were putting did. on. Yeah. To go further, might they be stretching the friendship with the electorate? Yeah, I think that's the big risk. I think the politics of what's happened this week are fascinating. The Greens managed to score more from the government on this than they have on anything. They could have banked the win, said victory for us, look what we got, now we'll back it. By not backing it, you know, deferral until October, you had all of the community housing groups out there saying, come on, please, you know, we, we've got projects we want to get started on here, we need this passed. So they're not getting any support from those social housing groups. What they're going after is what you say, that much bigger cohort of renters, the entire rental market. A lot of young voters there. This is the most hotly contested cohort of voters between Labor and the Greens. And so they're trying to make this a pitch to all renters. But in the meantime, it's this hold-up in the social housing that's really badly needed. So the, the risk is... They've pushed it just that bit too far now and the politics flipped back on them. I thought they they played this really well up until this week, but now I just wonder, and you can see Labor clearly think they've blundered and, boy, the PM's gone in really hard this week against them. For the Greens political party, this isn't about renters. It's not about people in social housing. It's not about affordable housing. It's about them. They want the issue, not the outcome. On the question, though, of the merits of a rental freeze, yeah. there are different views, but there are lots of people arguing that it actually isn't a very good policy idea. Here's the New South Wales Premier, Chris Minns, talking to me on RM Breakfast. I'm not going to bring in a policy that international experience indicates doesn't work to solve a Senate logjam. If I thought a rent freeze to be put in place would work, I'd do it, but I don't think it would. 
Okay. So would it work? It was really interesting, right, to hear him on your program really spell that out. He doesn't buy the this international evidence argument that the Greens' Max Chandler made. has been pointing to a study in New Jersey, and that's contested as well as to whether that really has helped much. The concern is that you put a rent freeze in place, you not only spook investors and therefore you don't get much more housing stock, but landlords also aren't going to spend money on the property, so the stock, the quality of the stock starts to really deteriorate. That's the arguments against it. They point to the ACT, which is a Labor Greens yeah. government, and they have controls, basically, on how much you can increase rent. I think it's 110% yeah. of the CPI, of the inflation rate each year. So a little bit more than, than inflation, it can go up, but not much more. So I think the Greens would be happy if the states all went down that path and it wasn't necessarily a, a freeze. But I just didn't think, listening to Chris Minns, what did you think, that he's keen no, on any of that? Not keen on any of that. And also I put that to the Treasurer, the ACT idea. And, of course, yes, the states and territories would determine yeah. it. But, you know, at a national level, there is a coordinated approach. The government could take leadership, and he didn't seem very enthusiastic either. Rents are a real issue. I mean, they've been skyrocketing. I think in some parts of Sydney and Melbourne, they've gone up nearly 40%. It's huge. It's huge. And you can see why governments are really under the pump to do something about it. Mm. Yes, it's typically a state government area of responsibility, but the Commonwealth is being looked at to show some leadership on this, put some pressure on the states, offer incentives to the states to do something more on this. So it really is a tricky one. It sure is. Look, the other thing that happened this week before we talked to Dana about the Mm. referendum that is looming later this year is we saw the release of the interim report into the PwC scandal. It found the consultancy firm was responsible for a calculated breach of trust and used the language of a deliberate cover-up. The committee has made just two findings, that the PwC cooperates fully with all investigations into the matter, it seems pretty obvious, and publishes the names and details of the personnel involved. And Mm. I spoke to the Treasurer about the report on RM Breakfast on, uh, we're recording this on a Thursday morning. He labelled the PwC breach deeply disappointing. Well, I mean, it is a a deeply disappointing breach of trust, uh, completely unacceptable because what's happened here is we've seen the consultation process trashed uh, and we need to get to the bottom of it. Uh, That's what this uh, interim report from the committee is all about. So that's the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. David, he wasn't clear on when we'll learn the names or the mechanism, although he said there are mechanisms to compel the firm, but not clear on what they are. No, he seemed to point in the interview to what the committee can do to compel um, the the publication of those names, but he was noticeably hesitant to really issue a public demand that they be released now or in a week or, you know, any sort of time frame around that. And look, I suspect that's due to wanting to allow individuals due process so they're not named unfairly and, you know, it's, it's going to trash reputations and careers, let's face it, right? That's uh, right. And, and there is a fear that people will be implicated that perhaps shouldn't be. Yeah, so they, they do need to be careful. I get the anger, the fury, the need for responsibility and transparency from PwC around all of this, but you do need to be careful. The report itself, yeah, it was it was pretty damning. I think this, this committee is still ongoing. so It is, and it's extended its term till you know, later this year now. So this is an interim report that mm-hmm. they clearly wanted to put out. Bipartisan? To, um, yeah, and, and that's not something we always see in this no, place. Not easy. You get uh, dissenting reports and so on, but they're all on the on the same page uh, about what PwC's done here. Just to read from some of the report, two aspects of PwC's approach are particularly striking. First, the incorrect application of legal professional privilege to tens of thousands of potentially incriminating documents. And second, the conspicuous failure to report a serious breach of confidentiality when PwC had a legal obligation to do so. I mean, this really just goes to the core of a trust 
at which, you know, these companies trade on their trust. And this report is ripped it apart. Look, it's got a long way to go. You've got the Federal Police Inquiry. You've got the Tax Practitioners Board Inquiry. This Senate committee is still inquiring. We're far from the end of this story. Oh, yeah. We are just warming up, I think. David, should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. Dana Morse is the ABC political reporter here in the Parliament Bureau and our guest in the partner room. Welcome. Dana, welcome. Thank you. It's been a historic week, really, on the uh, Indigenous Voice. Tell us a bit about the the mood, the vibe in the Senate chamber when that vote happened. Who was there? Who was watching on? What was the feeling? Yeah, it was certainly a long time coming, particularly for the government. They've been wanting to realise this policy and and kick this out of Parliament for quite some time. So there were a lot of people there in the chamber, pretty much a full house in the Senate. Uh, A notable exception was Patrick Dodson, who's, of course, not in Parliament at the moment. Also had some ministers drop by, uh, Linda Burney and Chris Bowen, Mark Dreyfus, Kate Cheney, Adam Bant, Barnaby Joyce even stuck his head in as well. And it's a, you know, it's a pretty historic occasion regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum because it's been close to three decades since we had a referendum. So this isn't the kind of legislation that you see passing every day. No, you're right. We don't do this very often as a nation and it's been a long time between drinks. I remember that last referendum Mm. and covering it, but look, so much has changed. But look, yes, there were a lot of supporters there in the galleries watching on, members of the working group and and so on, uh, there to watch this moment. But there were also the critics. Uh, Not everyone in Parliament is behind this idea of the voice, of course, and that includes now the independent senator, Lydia Thorpe. And that's what this is about. It's appeasing the white guilt in this country by giving, giving the poor little blackfellas a powerless advisory body. Dana, she'd been hedging a bit about which way she'd go ultimately, but she's now confirmed she'll be voting no. Yes, it's really interesting the sort of reasons that she's given for that. It seems that she was in negotiations with the federal government over implementing the recommendations from the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody and also the bringing them home report into uh, the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in out-of-home care. Seems like those negotiations broke down. The federal government has always maintained that the majority of the recommendations in both of those reports that haven't been actioned are the responsibility of the state and territories. However, you know, anybody knows the federal government can compel the state and territories to act on things, things like giving them a little bit of funding or a little Mm. nudge in particular ways. The federal government has not been forthcoming on their side of the story. Lydia Thorpe has certainly made it clear that she didn't get what she needed out of the negotiations and is now taken the full hard no option. She'd previously said that she was going to write treaty on her ballot paper, that she would abstain from the legislation being voted on in the parliament, but she's gone uh, full no at this point. Yeah, it's a real hardening of the position for sure. So, Dana, this essentially signals by this passing the, the end of the parliamentary procedures and the decision now is in the hands of the people. Like, it sort of kicks it into the community now, no more deliberation about wording and all of that, all of that kind of ends. So what happens now? Well, the hope from the government perspective is they've wanted to get this out of Parliament House for such a long time because it hasn't done very well here. It has been weighed down by 
all this fragmented debate. We're seeing it now play out with all this chat around Australia Day, whether or not The Voice will be advising on that. Uh, realistically, if it was to get up, I mean, the architects behind it say that's not a key concern. There are bigger fish to fry, essentially, on this. So we'll see it probably transition more into the community. The government wants the Yes 23 campaign to step up and take control of their side of the messaging. The No campaign is already very well galvanised, but not necessarily in the community. Uh, they have very active spokespeople in Warren Mundine and Jacinta Numbergimpa Price. But in terms of actually organising community events and rallies to talk about no cases, that hasn't really eventuated. Now that Lydia Thorpe's thrown her hat in the ring to say that she will be campaigning for a no side, a no vote... I think we can probably expect to see some community events around her and she is part of that staunch black community in Fitzroy in Melbourne and, you know, they're a protest movement sort of community. So I can imagine that that will probably start to pick up as well. Just in terms of what we saw in, in Parliament during the week because after the vote, the Coalition really went after um, Linda Burney. They directed a lot of questions to her in the House and it did go to some of those things like, you know, will the voice have scope to weigh in on Australia Day, and it did seem as though she suggested no, but there's uh, you know clearly an ability for them to do so. Just explain to us why this is a difficult thing for the government to be explaining, you know, the, the parameters, the scope of the voice. Why is this difficult for them? Yeah, so the parliament will write the legislation, which is the set of rules that govern the voice, if it passes at a referendum. So... In that legislation, we imagine they're going to say that it'll be around matters relating to and including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Now, does Australia Day affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? Absolutely. Sure does. Yeah. Is that going to be a key concern of the voice to Parliament when we do need to see action on things like the Royal mm. Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, into systemic poverty, into food insecurity in the Northern Territory? Probably not. So it's really about balancing, not saying, no, you won't be able to talk about that, but are you really going to want to? This is the thing for the, for the government, though, isn't it? The difficulty of saying, in a practical sense, they're not going to be bothered with parking tickets and what advice the Reserve Bank should be getting and, you know, yeah. let's not be ridiculous here. But at the same time, they don't want to suggest there is any limitation here on the scope of the voice. But do you think the Australia Day argument is so ridiculous? Australia Day brings a lot of things to the fore for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and why not deal with those issues first? I think it's taken this long to get this kind of recognition, to get this kind of power if it passes, which is every chance that it won't. You're not going to then focus on the small stuff. They're going to want to have their voices heard. And then, again, the other part of this is that they can make the recommendation that Australia Day move and the parliament can go, Thanks, but mm, no yeah, thanks. Right. Yeah, because there's nothing compulsory about their advice, which is actually Lydia Thorpe's problem with it. Look, I think Linda Burney, the Minister for Indigenous Australians, has been trying to contain this. Here she is trying to explain it. And do not tell me that the proposition that the Prime Minister has outlined is not needed in this country. I am not interested in culture wars I am interested in closing the gap. Well, I know some people have been critical this week of Linda Burney. I just didn't really see the wisdom in the coalition directing all those questions at Linda Burney right now. I thought she did okay, actually, in, in you know sticking to the argument on 
why the voice is needed from her perspective. I think some of these arguments are difficult for them to balance between, look, what the voice will have scope to do because they are at times talking to different constituencies on this. But what did you think? How, how did you think she went, the Minister? She's got to speak to both sides on this, and that is the thing. She's got to balance what Lydia Thorpe is saying, that this will be powerless because, yes, it will not have a veto power, but also that it will have power to the Aboriginal exactly. community who want to see action. You've got to balance those two things, and that's what the Minister is mm. trying to do. Of course, while we're having this big discussion that's going to go on for months, the AEC has warned of a rise in disinformation on The Voice last month flagging that there had been a regrettable increase in threatening comments. Is the disinformation really, really ramping up now? Yeah, I think so. Uh, there's a really interesting link between the far right, the anti-vaxxer movement, the conspiracy theory movement and what they've latched onto. And the voice has certainly been one of those things. It starts in a lot of these telegram channels and then it makes it way, its way into the broader public discourse. It's interesting. I've been speaking with some misinformation disinformation experts and they say the way that you combat this is to talk about what it is and what it isn't. And we hear that all the time with the Prime Minister's rhetoric where he says, the voice will do this, this and this. The voice will not do this, this and this. So that's their advice. But there's no, there's no silver bullet. If there was, we would have used it by now. And what about the pamphlet? Um, this is meant to be accurate, reliable information for the yes and the no camps that, that will be put together. What's the process now for who gets to write this and when do they, how do they work all that out. Do we know? Yeah, so the pamphlet is written by committees and so the committee people are on either side of the case are people who voted for or against the legislation. So that's why in the House of Representatives we saw a few um, Liberal people decide that they were going to vote no even though the rest of the party voted yes because they need they want to be mm. on the committee. Same thing for Lydia Thorpe. We think that's a big reason why she decided to vote no so she could be involved in well, that committee. that's going to be interesting. So does she sit down with Pauline Hanson and, uh, I don't know, David Littleproud? And, and... Right, yeah, most likely. I've, other people have said it's very unlikely that her argument will actually make it into the pamphlet because she has no power, because she's not aligned with any of the other people that are in that group. However, mm. I think her and Jacinta Price may find some common ground. I think it's very unlikely her and Pauline Hanson will find common ground. But the other interesting thing about the pamphlets is they're not fact-checked and they're also the AEC put their you know, branding on it and send it out, but they don't even run a spell check over it. So it can have whatever, up to 2,000 words for each case, and then it'll be cut off, even if you're in the middle of a sentence, and that'll be delivered to every single household at some point in the lead-up to the referendum. I'd love to get a live camera into that meeting of the no camp. The yes camp's pretty straightforward, right? I mean, they can write their thing, they all agree. But that, that meeting, you think about those figures sitting around the table working out what to put in the, yes. in the essay for the no camp. I'd love to see that. Yeah. I am interested in just how many Australians will read it, though. Well, this was why yeah. the government initially didn't want to go ahead with it because they think it's a waste of time and money and that most people won't read it and they'll go online for their information. But it was a concession mm. in getting that machinery bill over the line. Dana, picking your brain has mm. been a, a good moment for me. Thank you for coming Thanks, into the party room. Thank you. We'll move to questions without notice. we give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for the party rooms question time. And this week's question comes from Jan from Sydney. Here he is. I thought that the states get to vote on the referendum as individual states and also all the people within the states. 
But the territories are a bit different. That the people in the territories get to vote in the overall numbers, but they don't get counted as states. Considering that the Northern Territory is the most dense population of Indigenous Australians, does that mean Indigenous Australians effectively have less of a voice on The Voice? Wow. Mm. Quite a good question. Yeah, and so to explain, um, yes, they kind of do, right? Yep. Because, and so do we in the ACT. I'm a, I'm a proud Territorian in the ACT, and don't uh, get me started about underrepresentation here. Mm. Uh, I'll get to that. So with a referendum, look, everybody votes once, but the way to pass a referendum is you need 50% plus one of the national population, and then you need four out of the six states. So it's known as the double majority. That's the double majority. The constitutional founders put it in there as a pretty high bar to clear if you want to change the constitution, and fair enough. But it does mean that the territories aren't counted in that second hurdle that needs to be cleared, right? It's four out of the six states, not the Northern Territory, not the ACT. So, look, everybody gets one vote, but, yes, the question is... One vote counts for more. It has more weight. Well, yes, it does. It's a heavier vote. A heavier vote. The particular focus on the the Territory and the concentration of Indigenous Australians there is a a fair point. It's it's not going to help with that second hurdle of the four out of the six states. What do you think, BK? I think it is not a fair system, but it's the system we have... And it's not going to change before this referendum. But I think it's fair to point out that uh, it seems very unfair, particularly that a disproportionate um, number of people live in the Northern Territory who are Indigenous Australians and that they aren't able to have a sort of state vote where they are able potentially, potentially, we don't know how they'd vote, but produce a majority. Yeah, and look, you can see the particular focus on this issue that, look, I would say the Northern Territory's had how many goes at voting whether they should become a state over the couple years? A couple of goes. A couple of goes. couple of red they hot goes. voting no. Yep. They'll no doubt have another go at some point down the track. So that's a question for the Territory. They've had their chance to become a state, to be fair, to mm. be you know clear about uh, they've chosen to remain a Territory and this is what the Constitution says. But the broader point that I'll complain about as a Territorian is um, beyond just this referendum, Senate representation. Every state... This was part of the Federation. Every state, even the little ones, get 12 senators. Us territories get two. So uh, here in the ACT, we have a population that is not far behind Tasmania. Mm -hmm. We get far fewer uh, politicians, two senators compared to 12. If the territories had 12 senators each, can you imagine how different our parliament would look? If you had 12 senators from the ACT, 12 senators from the Northern Territory... It would be a very different parliament. It would be hugely different. Anyway, my little soapbox is a territory. Uh, that's good. David wants his full voting rights. <laughs> All right. Keep sending your questions in because we love getting them. We're especially fond of voice notes, and that was a great one, which you can email to the party room at abc.net.au. Remember to follow the party room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. That's it for the party room this week. But we will be back in your feeds next week. See you, David. See you, PK. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.